Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome back to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover those things for Slate. And we are bringing you this special bonus episode of Amicus that was recorded live on stage in Austin, Texas, this past weekend. So good afternoon, Austin. It is. It is. Uh, I can't figure out why any of you want to hear a podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. That's insane. Don't you have anything better to do? Thank you all uh, so much for coming out. Welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the Supreme Court and the law and the rule of law. And uh, we're live today here in Austin, Texas. This is Slate Day at TribFest. And uh, we're just delighted that you're listening in at home. And we're delighted to... Uh, what a fantastically hip-looking crowd we have here in Austin. Um, I didn't. I always think of my listeners as being much nerdier than this, so the, <laughs> thrilling. Um, what about your guests? And Mike, well, and, and scene. Um, so uh, I am, uh, joining me today is this really extraordinary roster. Uh, I couldn't have, like, wished up a better list of experts to talk about the Supreme Court, um, both uh, last term, next term, and a little something we call the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Uh, and so uh, together we're going to try to pick through whatever debris of last week uh, we can sort through and what's going to come next and what it means uh, for the court and, and, in fact, for the country. Um, and so I'm thrilled to introduce, uh, joining me here on stage, uh, Angela Onwachi-Willig, who is the Dean of Boston University Law School and a scholar in race and gender uh, and uh, particularly uh, inequality and civil rights. Welcome. To her left is Christina Rodriguez. She teaches at Yale Law School. She served as a deputy assistant attorney general at OLC. Uh, and she is, uh, I guess we've got a lot of Texas natives here. I, in fact, I think I'm the lone not uh, Texas native, but San Antonio, is that right? There you go. On my far right, a friend of this podcast, Steve Laddick. He teaches at uh, University of Texas uh, with a focus on federal jurisdiction, con law, national he's a national security uh, analyst uh, and a Supreme Court analyst at CNN, and he's a mad blogger. I hope you read him constantly for just security and lawfare. Steve, welcome. Thank you. On my immediate right, Adam White. He's director of the Center for Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University, uh, the Antonin Scalia School of Law, and he's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, and you may remember him from his testimony at the Brett Kavanaugh hearing, so welcome, Adam. Thank you. So I guess um, my first question will start with the events of this past Thursday. Uh, and my first question is, what? <laughs> um, that was, I was in the room in Dirksen. Uh, it was a very small room. Doesn't come across as that small on TV. And um, Adam, do you mind starting uh, and just telling us, you know, you, you testified in favor of Kevin. I know that you... Um, really are, are uh, think this, this might have gone off the rails, and I'd love yeah. to hear you start uh, at, with the understanding that it is incredibly generous of you to yeah. be here on this panel. Well, you, you told me this was a federal society yeah, convention. It, is. <laughs> it totally is. Well, I, um, I testified on the last day of the original hearings. Uh, at that point, even the protesters had gotten bored. Uh, <laughs> but I, 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 I spoke in favor of Judge Kavanaugh and his record on constitutional law. Last week, uh, I'm happy to say, I spent the week running conferences at my program at the Scalia Law School, and so I didn't actually get to see most of it in real time. I've been playing 
catch up ever since. But yeah, I do think that things went off the rail. Um, just to back up really quickly, when the anonymous allegations came out against Kavanaugh, I thought I, I did. I was against continuing the hearing process. When Dr. Ford's name came out, I said, no, there does need to be a hearing on this. I have been very worried about the extension of the investigation process beyond the hearings. I've, I'm worried that it sets a precedent that all future Supreme Court hearings, when you sit for your seventh nomination, everybody's going to sit through the hearings wondering, well, when does the real action start afterwards? And so I wrote about this in the Weekly Standard. I think that the best thing the Senate could have done was structure a process that encourages everybody to get all the information out as early as possible before the FBI investigation and the hearings. And I, I think that the, the wreckage that we saw on Thursday was a symbol of how far things have really gone off the rails, and I think it's a, it's a sad thing. So it's it's a, a fair observation. I think you speak for an awful lot of people. Certainly, we heard a lot of, you know, this is just too late and it's not enough. Um, one of the things that I think happened at the hearings, and I'd, I'd love to hear what really any of you talk about this, is we kind of conflated a, a, a criminal trial, you know, in the language of what is the burden of proof? What is the presumption here? What quantum of evidence do we need? There was a lot of talk about an absence of evidence um, but at the same time, the other side was talking about this as a, you know, this is a job interview. You don't need a quantum of evidence. You don't need a presumption. Uh, so I think that that got very confusing very quickly. And I wonder if any of you wants to speak to how just murky and sloppy as lawyers it was to watch a proceeding at which nobody knew what the standard of proof was and nobody had any evidence other than, I will say, first-person testimony, which is still evidence. I guess, I guess one response I have in response to what Adam said is that I think that, um, I, I understand your concern about everything coming out, um, so late, but I think we have to evaluate everything within the context. And I think we're, you know, we're operating within a society in which it's very difficult for women to come forward when they've experienced some kind of sexual harassment or sexual assault. And so the fact that this came out later, um, is part of that. It's wrapped up in that. And I think it would be wrong to say that because it came out, um, at a late date that we shouldn't have, that we shouldn't follow up on it because we recognize that we're part of the reason why women um, um, are reluctant to come forward. And you can see why, given the reaction, the death threats, um, the reaction just generally in society, why um, so many people have been reluctant to come forward. Steve? I, I would just add, I think it would be very helpful for as much as it's possible to separate the conversation about process um, from substance. Um, right, which is to say, the Senate's constitutional function here is pretty clear. It's advise and consent. And what that means is up to them. Um, they set their rules. They set the terms. They set the conditions. And so I think all of the yelling and bickering about process fouls is not beside the point, but also shouldn't affect how we think of the substantive conversation, which is, do we, and by we I mean do the 100 senators who represent us, um, believe that the record is such that they can support this nominee's case for confirmation. In that context, you know, I, I just, I find the process bickering distasteful, um, especially coming so soon on the heels of a nomination that never even got a process, um, right? That, that everyone sort of, I, I know it's shocking to say there's hypocrisy in Washington. Um, <laughs> what now? I know, but... <laughs> But I, I guess I, you know, what I'm a little uh, offended is too strong. I'm a little irked um, by the notion that you know we should hide what most of the Republican senators are saying is credible, plausible testimony from Dr. Blasey Ford because of perceived, perhaps not even real, process fouls because of allegation. By the way, unproven, uncorroborated allegations about process fouls. Um, that should get us in the way of hearing these potentially provable, potentially corroboratable, not a word, allegations that might actually bear on the nominee's qualifications. Christina? So I think that, uh, there's one important point uh, to make in, re in response to Adam's concern and then to address your question. I've heard the concern that this might lead to a race to the bottom with respect to the nominations process. But that's not what happened after the Clarence Thomas hearings, right? I mean, that was a similarly sorted, unfortunate series of events, and that might have been an articulated concern at the time, but there hasn't been a nomination process like that since then. They've all had a political dimension, to be sure, but 
all of the nominees sailed through, and there weren't uh, these planted accusations coming out of the, the woodwork. We might live in a more polarized time now than we did in 1991, but I think that that history is instructive, and it goes to the point that this is a very specific allegation against a very specific person. Uh, and to address your point, Dahlia, about how to make sense of uh, the way that decision makers should come to an evaluation of what happened. I think there's both the question of how you understand the allegation itself, and certainly her testimony was highly credible, and a number of people will make a judgment on the basis of that, that that means that there is an act in his past that disqualifies him. But also, and, and this is where the hearing, I think, went off the rails, was in how we judge his response. And whether it's a true allegation, whether he doesn't remember what happened, uh, in some ways, on, on that question is beside the point, and how he addresses both the nature of the accusation, but then uh, the fact that it came up in his confirmation hearings at all is reflective of his character and integrity, which ought to go into the equation if we were having a robust advice and consent process. Yeah, I, I want to be very clear here. I, sexual assault is heinous and evil, and I don't, um, I can't imagine what it's like to be in the, the shoes of a victim like this, and I don't fault um, Dr. Ford for choosing when and how to come forward. If, and if she had come, if she had approached the Senate after the hearings, I think that would be a much more difficult case. What really bothered me, and this, as I understand it, I could be wrong, is the fact that the allegations were brought to the Senate to a senator's attention, and there wasn't, as far as we know, or as far as I've seen, an effort to explore this confidentially in the course of the normal of the investigation process before we actually got to the hearings. That's the part that really troubles me. And by the same token, for Judge Kavanaugh's reactions uh, during the hearings, uh, the, the explosive reactions, um, I can't imagine, assume, I assume good faith on the part of everybody here. And if Judge Kavanaugh genuinely thinks that he is being falsely accused of sexual assault, I don't know how I would react in that situation. Obviously, he's a, he's a sitting judge aspiring for the Supreme Court, and that carries real burdens of how you present yourself. But it's very hard for me to to sort of complain about how he comported himself when he felt like he was under unprecedented attack and being accused of one of literally the most heinous and vile things possible. So I, I actually, that's a, a perfect segue because I, I think, you know, we are talking about the courts in the court, and... Um, we all understand here, I feel like I say it on every show, that the totality of the legitimacy of the Supreme Court rests in public confidence in that institution. And public confidence, by the way, that that institution is not a political entity. And I think that the real damage wasn't the shouting and wasn't Lindsey Graham, you know, having whatever that fit was. <laughs> I think the real damage is to the notion that we have a court that transcends politics. And I certainly reflected, uh, uh, I think, in the piece that I wrote that I don't know if I were a lawyer who had to argue a case before Justice Kavanaugh, having heard him say this is a coordinated smear job by, you know, big liberal money to, to avenge the Clintons. I mean, that just felt to me as though it was literally, you know, like almost a dagger in the heart of the ideas that Clarence Thomas and Sam Alito and the Federalist Society hold dear. And so I wonder if anyone wants to reflect on just beyond the optics. And I, there are amazing questions about race and gender and class that undergird this whole, you know, this whole story. But I just think institutionally, if one worries about the integrity and the independence of the federal courts, I just think John Roberts is like balled up under his mm -hmm. bed sobbing because I don't know how you recover from this. Does anyone want to answer that? If not questions, Christina? Yeah, so I, I agree with you that the, all of the sitting justices must be horrified. Um, but I, I think I would, I would characterize the problem a little bit differently. I, I think that I would not describe the Supreme Court as a non-political institution. I think that it makes very political decisions, and people are aware of that, and that's what heightens the stakes in these nominations battles. But they're, they're political decisions that require people to have, uh, or that draw from people's ideologies, and also require not just technical legal interpretation, but the definition of values, like equality and liberty that are the Constitution, and their application to specific circumstances. So because it's getting questions of first impression, uh, there's definitely politics 
involved in the decision making. And, and I think that is to the good. I'm not suggesting that that is uh, a problematic characterization for a high court in a constitutional system. But what it's not uh, supposed to be is partisan or to give the perception that the judgments are made uh, for partisan purposes to reward one tribe versus the other. Because it is so political in the kinds of decisions that it has to make and in the way it goes about making them, I think it teeters on this very fine line uh, in sustaining public confidence. And one once you have this sense that it's just about the Republicans winning or the Democrats winning, once that takes over, then it just makes the court like the other other institutions. And these opinions that are supposed to be learned opinions uh, become uh, political platforms, uh, and or at least are interpreted that way. And, and that is what bothered me most about Kavanaugh's statement, was that it was um, not just inadvertently partisan, but deliberately partisan. And his attacks on the Democratic Senate the invocation of the Clintons, uh, all was bizarre uh, from my point of view, and that's why I think judges the world over might be cringing. I'm going to go to you in one second, Steve, but I, I guess I would just say there's a part of me, and I, I think a lot of listeners who probably say, that's all very well and good, Christina, but like, thank God we've ripped off the charade. <laughs> like, let's just call it what it is. All this umpire and, you know, what Clarence Thomas called, you know, we're going to strip down like runners and all of our ideology is gone. Let's just put it out there because like, let's match up the inside with the outside. So, so I, think, I think there's no question that for folks who see the Supreme Court as the enemy of progress in this country, um, this is a healthy revelation, even if it's a horrifying one to me as a, as a law professor. Um, but I mean, I think the problem is, I, I just, I think there are two additional layers of problems there. The first is, um, this, even if you think the Supreme Court is just partisan, well, but they're partisan and not elected. Um, and so it's actually worse if that's the perception of the court that, that it's then just being another political branch, because at least the political branches are up for election every so often, by the way, you know, November 6th, 38 days from now. Um, <laughs> But um, I, I say this having lived in D.C. for a long time where, you know, my vote was worth less than nothing. And now I live in Texas where apparently we have elections. Um, but the, the, the other piece of that, though, and I think this is really important, is, you know, I, I get into this fight on Twitter with people to my left all the time where I say, guys, it's about the Supreme Court. And they say, but Bush versus Gore, but Citizens United, but, but Shelby Merrick County, Garland. but Merrick Garland. And you know what? Yes, I think there were problems with each of those developments. But my response is, but Obergefell, um, right? But Brown versus Board of Education. Like, you know, we live in a country in a system where we need the Supreme Court to be counter-majoritarian. Um, and that means sometimes the counter-majoritarianism cuts out in a way that's consistent with our political preferences. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, when Justice Kennedy was the median vote, you know, how many people agreed with every single one of his votes in those cases? So I I'm worried about the long-term damage um, to the institutional ability of the court to stand up to the majority, whether it's a majority we voted for or a majority we voted against um, on cases that either matter deeply to us or even more importantly that don't. And I think that took a fearful beating this week, more so than Bush versus Gore, more so than Citizens United, more so than Merrick Garland, because in all of those contexts, we weren't talking about how each specific decision handed down by the court for the next generation was going to be perceived. Um, if the result of this process is indeed that Judge Kavanaugh is confirmed, there's going to be a decent chunk of the country that perceives him as, as completely hopelessly, you know, ethically conflicted in all these cases. I mean, if the ACLU, which by the way today came out against his confirmation, um, is in a case where he, where there's a clear partisan valence and they move to, they seek his recusal because of his comments about the Democrats. I don't think that's ridiculous. And, and that should be really terrifying. Angela, I wonder if, I mean, I think that everything Steve is saying is true, stipulated, but I also think we are in this moment, right? I'm still brain damaged from, from Thursday because I've never, I, I don't know what to make of it yet. But then part of me thinks, look, we went through this. We went through this in 1991 with Clarence Thomas. And, you know, he said some equally, I think, very, very, very provocative things, including high-tech lynching for uppity blacks, right? It was not nothing. And I suspect if we had been sitting on this panel in 1991, we might have said some of the things that Steve is saying, which is this is a hopelessly compromised conservative who will not have any legitimacy. 
And we could debate that. I don't know. I'm sure a lot of people think that that is just the case. But it's also the case that we we got over it and the court still is, you know, held in, in unbelievably high esteem, at least relative to the other branches of government that are, you know, have 3% approval ratings. But, uh, you know, the court bounces back, right? The court will be okay if, if, if Justice Kavanaugh is confirmed. Am I wrong? Uh, I think you're wrong. Good. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I mean, so we could we could look at the um, at the woman who confronted uh, Senator Flake in the elevator, and what they said was really powerful. They said that basically um, they believe that voting yes on him would basically be telling all women that their stories didn't matter, that their lives didn't matter, that their voices didn't matter. And I think that even now, for some people, right, um, twenty five years later feel that way about the Thomas, uh, the Thomas hearings as well. So I think that, um, I, I think that we won't get over it. I also want to say that I think that there is a problem with the yelling. I understand that it's incredibly emotional and that, you know, when you, if you truly believe you're innocent, right, that you would be just really angry and that that might come out. But I think we expect more out of a justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, we expect them to be able to rise above it and to separate themselves. We want to know that they're going to be able to treat all opinion, all, you know, all cases before them and all, all uh, arguments with respect and all people before them with respect. And, you know, we didn't see that. I mean, we saw, you know, incredible disrespect, um, uh, to, uh, you know, one of the female senators in, in, uh, from Minnesota. Amy Klobuchar, yeah. Um, uh, and I find that um, worrisome for a lot of different reasons. The other thing I would say is I think there's a lot of hypocrisy going on. Um, I would I wonder how people would respond if Judge Kavanaugh was an African-American man or an African-American woman and had responded in that way. Think back to uh, Sotomayor's hearings and Lindsey Graham, who who basically threw a fit during the hearing, he questioned, he, he was talking, pulling out all these comments about Sotomayor and her temperament that people had written when she was on the second, second circuit. And he was telling her she needed to engage in self-reflection and all these things. I mean, I mean, and then he turns around and he is defending Judge Kavanaugh for behavior that we never saw at a Sotomayor. We know that probably the comments about Sotomayor are tinged with race and gender bias, uh, stereotypes about the angry Latina. And so I, you know, I just, um, I find the whole thing problematic. Steve's trying uh, to, to jump in. I, was, I, just, I feel like Thursday played into so many of the horrible stereotypes we have about this conversation, right? I mean, in the morning you have Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, you know, apologetic. Um, desperately seeking the approval of the senators before whom she's testifying, right? You know, shaking as she's reading her testimony. Um, you know, just, and then you have in the afternoon the, you know, the angry, justifiably or not, right? Um, privileged white guy standing up there and answering a question, you know, um, did you drink in, in, did you drink in college? Beer, I got into your law school. Beer, beer, beer. No, but, beer, and, then, yeah. and also, and I got into, I mean, what is I, what is I got into your law school an answer to? I'd like to know because I got into your law school too. <laughs> um, so, so I just, I, I, part of what I did not like about Thursday was not just the tone and the tenor and the substance. It was the reinforcing yeah. of every single bad stereotype in both directions, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I just, we should all be better than that. And I don't, yeah. and I, and I don't blame, I don't blame, I mean, you know, I, I haven't been in Judge Kavanaugh's position. I haven't been in Dr. Ford's position. You know, I don't, it's, it's not necessarily about them. I, I blame the senators. I mean, you know, and, and I think, and there's a pox on both your houses here. I think, you know, a number of senators across the aisle um, did not exactly acquit themselves well um, in how they've handled this whole process, procedurally and substantively, and especially on Thursday. Adam, I feel like, I, do you want to stick your head into the yawning maw that is uh, <laughs> what's just been unfolded for you? You can also not, I mean, you I, I, you don't have to defend shouting. <laughs> oh, I, well, first of all, I want to know why the audience gets beanbag chairs and we don't. That's, that's the thing that bothers me the most. Cool. No, well, welcome to Austin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, just a couple of things. Um, First of all, on the court's legitimacy, well, first of all, I did bristle at Kavanaugh's reference to the Clintons. That, that, that did bother me. Um, I do think posing it in strictly partisan terms is a real danger. And I say that as somebody who was very upset 
uh, when, or not upset, but criticized uh, Justice Ginsburg when she started to stake out a position against President Trump, a president who I, I, I don't support myself, um, but who I was worried about that, and I thought that there was a danger that she was politicizing the court. But the thing is, at the end of the day, I just disagree that the process that creates Supreme Court justices, a political process where they're picked by presidents and debated by senators, I don't think that says much about the legitimacy of the court. I think the way the justices comport themselves, the way they comport themselves in office, the way they come to decisions and justify those decisions, that's ultimately where the legitimacy of the court hangs in the balance. And just a bigger picture, a, a bigger picture worry I have about all of this, and it's a problem on both the left and the right, progressives and libertarians, more and more we seem to be farming our political debates out to the courts. And I think this is extremely dangerous. Uh, Justice Scalia, who I name not just because his name's on my business card and I get a nickel every time I mention him, <laughs> but also uh, Justice Scalia in one of his most famous dissents, right after the Souter and Thomas confirmations, he tells his colleagues at the end of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, you worry about the confirmation process, you worry that it's too political. Until the court itself gets itself out of politics, it will only get worse and worse. Now, there's a lot you can criticize in there about when the court has or hasn't been political. But I think the risk of farming more and more policy issues out to the courts is a real danger. The, this idea on both sides of the aisle that we should take decisions out of politics and, and, and devote them to experts in the courts or as somebody who runs the Center for the, for the Study of the Administrative State, not the Center for the Administrative State, that's, <laughs> Yale, that's Yale. Um, <laughs> but as we take more of these issues out of Congress – or the states, and we give them to the agencies and the courts, we're just desiccating our politics and leaving it with nothing but this bitter, bitter adrenalized debate over who we put in charge of the institutions that are now going to decide everything for us. Uh, it's, a, it's a great point, and I, and I um, think it actually dovetails with the next sort of thematic thing I think we need to say out loud, which is this is not just any seat. This is Anthony Kennedy's seat. And this is going to mean that the careening swing voter uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court, who is now huddled under his bed, is, is John Roberts, uh, who is a who, life Who doesn't careen. He doesn't careen. I mean, he is not swingy. Uh, you know, with a handful of exceptions, um, he has been a very, very consistent vote for the sort of heritage Federalist Society values, you know, that, that, that uh, he came up with. So I, I want to talk about, and, and we can talk about it through the lens of, of appearances, because I think part of this is a, a legitimacy of the court question. What does it mean when every single conservative on the port, court will have been appointed by a Republican, every liberal will have been appointed by a Democrat? There is no median voter. Uh, anymore, and we are now going to look at a for the foreseeable future a five four court on virtually everything. That is part of the reason that this thing blew up. So, can we talk about Christina? Maybe you want to talk first about what it means to have a court without a middle. So, I think that that is a scary prospect. Uh, and there there are two values to a swing justice. And uh, I clerked for Justice O'Connor, and she uh, was one of those. And there were there were two things about the way she approached judging that I think. Uh, is probably lost at, at this point. Uh, the first, of course, is that for some important set of cases, it's uncertain what her views are. She had principled positions on a, in a number of areas, uh, most clearly with respect to federalism uh, and belief in states' rights. But there were there was a range of issues where it was not predictable what she would do. And that leaves open the possibility that there is room for debate among reasonable people about how the Constitution applies in certain circumstances. But I think that's a, a secondary uh, consideration or the, a secondary virtue of her approach. And, and, I, and I think Justice Kennedy, uh, after her, and then Justice Powell before her also um, had a flavor of this in their jurisprudence. And that's that uh, someone having someone at the center of the court who is willing to take account of the social consequences of the court's decisions is crucial. In, in the cases where she was defined as a swing voter, it wasn't that she didn't have a view about uh, certain jurisprudential issues. It's that she understood that what the court was doing would have an impact on people's lives and that that sometimes required pragmatic judgment 
Amendment, um, or in, in the case of Justice Kennedy, defending this very fundamental value of human dignity, which led him to depart from his um, ideological compatriots in a number of cases that protect, in particular, um, the, the the rights of uh, the rights to same-sex marriage. Ultimately, that is something that that I, I don't think that we'll get from a Justice Roberts as the median voter, um, though it's possible. I mean, I think that his ideology is far more thoroughgoing conservative. He believes in the court as an institution. I think the fact that he was willing to vote to uphold the Affordable Care Act, uh, despite disagreeing with um, the the idea that Congress actually had power uh, to enact it under the, the Commerce Clause, is a sign that he believes the court can't get so far out ahead of uh, social consensus or a major political resolution. Um, and, and that could come uh, in good use <laughs> in the next couple of years. But but I'm not sure that he sees enough questions as falling in that bucket because he is such a, a stark conservative as compared to, to Kennedy. So, so, so one of the, I, I'm so glad you said that because I think, you know, one of the questions we all have is which John Roberts is going to show up in the next couple of years, is it John Roberts, you know, sort of very, very much a movement conservative? I don't think that's in dispute. Or is it John Roberts who really models himself after his hero, Chief Justice Rehnquist, who was an institutionalist, who was very careful and who really changed uh, when he was in positions where he had to protect the integrity of the institutions, he would vote differently. And we've seen John Roberts do that. So so I guess, Angela, this is a question for you. But I think a lot of the folks who are really thinking about Roe and Casey and, you know, uh, reproductive rights say, don't worry, John Roberts is not going to be the guy who overturns Roe for these institutional reasons. And I'm not asking you to, you know, predict the future. I think it does depend in some measure on which John Roberts shows up with, with the coda, by the way, that I think What's happening now is going to very much make institutionalist John Roberts show up in the near term because I think that he will pull back from anything that has raised the temperature on the court. But I just wonder if you would reflect for a minute on what what you think about, you know, does this give you sort of reassurance that the institutionalist John Roberts is not going to do anything draconian or do you sort of feel like, oh, it's going to get done one way or another? Uh, and so whether it's an outright reversal of Roe and Casey or it's sort of an erosion of Roe and Casey, it's all coming down. Do you have a sense of I, I think we'll get you know, either an erosion or an outright um, overturning of Roe. Um, I, I think that you make a really good point uh, about um, the role that, the shifting role of, of uh, John Roberts. And I think it's possible, I think it's, actually it's weirdly, I think it's, it's, um, it's more likely that he would not do anything to overturn Obergefell than I think that he would to do Roe. I think Roe, even though it's been around since 1973, I think in some ways, because there's been so much um, social and political debate about the issue the entire time, really intense, that it feels in a way less settled, even though it's quite settled. I mean, I think most of us would argue that it's clearly settled law. Um, um, and um, But I think that that provides an opening for the possibility of at least, um, 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 you know, slowly taking away the, the whatever whatever's left, basically, of Roe now, or either of overturning it completely. I think Obergefell is a little bit more um, protected for that reason. I think in part because of, you know, uh, you know, basically the majority, a, a huge part of the country, I think, uh, and it's understood, I think, among... Uh, from Robert's point of view, that um, most of the country is very much in favor of same-sex marriage, and that feels much more settled than Roe. Uh, you think about it, let me think about it a little bit more. Yeah. Okay. But, you think oh. Steve's going to talk? But there, uh, <laughs> I think that's right. Angela thinks I talk. Um, so, <laughs> um, at the risk of getting into trouble, See, I mean, I, funny lawyers are funny. <laughs> Never on purpose. Um, the, at the risk of getting in trouble, I mean, I, I understand and don't discount the focus on Roe. Um, I think John Roberts, for all the reasons you guys have laid out, is going to be very hesitant about being the fifth vote to overrule Roe. He won't have to be um, because there's so much you can do to eviscerate um, the right recognized in Roe under the guise of applying 
the undue burden test in KC, um, that the court can say with a straight face, we're being consistent with Roe. Like, I, I think that's, I understand why that's a battlefield out in the real world. I actually think that's not where the action's gonna be. Um, but for Obergefell, yeah, they're not gonna revisit Obergefell, but what about whether sexual orientation is a protected basis for discrimination under Title VII? Um, right, where um, federal anti-discrimination law prevents employers from discriminating on this sexual orientation. You know, I, I was quite confident that Anthony Kennedy would have been a fifth vote to hold that sexual orientation is protected um, under Title VII. I have absolutely no confidence that anyone, Judge Kavanaugh or any of the other people on the short list, are that fifth vote, right? And that, and so, so it's not, I, I don't think we're going to see, I think John Roberts Institutionalist is, is going to want to limit the number of, like, outright overrulings, but you know, what to me are logical extensions? Um, no, um, right? And I think the problem is, you know, the Supreme Court is a reactive body. It doesn't go out, it doesn't make up the cases it takes, um, right? To overrule Roe, you would need a state to actually prohibit abortion. Um, I live in Texas, it's possible, um, right? Um, but, you know, for the, having Justice Kennedy as the median vote, and this is, I think, what, what Christina was saying, if you're a justice voting on whether to take a case in the first place, and you don't know if you have Justice Kennedy's vote. Maybe you vote to deny, right? Um, if you're writing an opinion and you need to keep Justice Kennedy on board, maybe you moderate the holding and the language of the opinion lest you lose it. Maybe you give the opinion to Justice Kennedy, right, to hold them. I mean, why are there no, you know, liberal concurrences in major Kennedy opinions in Obergefell, et cetera? So my concern is not the sort of hot-button, high-profile, hyper-visible cases. I think the damage is going to be far more pervasive and um, beneath the surface when you have a court that is not worried about attracting a median vote. Um, when, you have a, when you have justices who can vote for cert confident that they know they have five votes going in. And frankly, when you have state legislatures and state attorneys general who could be much more comfortable in taking what I would have thought of as deeply controversial statutes or executive branch practices to this Supreme Court because they're not worried about their inability to predict where Justice Kennedy is. Right. And we're seeing that even this week in abortion in abortion cases that in are Louisiana. coming down where it's like, you know, you, clearly people are freed up uh, uh, to write what they want to write in ways that didn't happen even a year ago. Right. I mean, just, just to put me on that bone, I mean, so there's, there's a case from the Fifth Circuit, which is the Federal Appeals Court for Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, um, about a Louisiana law that was very much like the Texas law that a 5-3 Supreme Court struck down two years ago in Whole Woman's Health. Um, and the, the, the Fifth Circuit, what, two days ago, upheld this law, two to one. And there's a lot of stuff in the opinion about how this case is different from Whole Woman's Health. There's some factual differences. There's some, you know, contextual differences. No, the difference is Anthony Kennedy is no longer on the Supreme right, Court. Right. And we're going to hear now from another great sponsor on our show, SAP. This episode is brought to you by SAP. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But... It will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia, identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks, and automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. You're listening to this podcast, so you care about history and what a period we're living through right now, specifically when it comes to the situation in Israel and Gaza. Right now, you're hearing a lot of loud voices screaming about genocide, massacre, and occupation. But these words, slogans, and various headlines are not enough to help understand what is happening over there. And that's where this podcast comes in. Check out Unpacking Israeli History. Catch up on previous seasons and enjoy new episodes from season six each week where they cover many of the topics that are relevant to what's going on in Israel today. From the history of infamous terror groups Hamas and Hezbollah to the story of Nakba to Israel's disengagement from Gaza in 2005, there's so much to uncover. Unpacking Israeli history cuts through the noise and helps you understand Israel's present through understanding Israel's history. So educate yourself. Learn the history behind the headlines. Find Unpacking Israeli History wherever you listen to podcasts. So I want to I want to turn to Adam for one second because he's been patient, but um, I, I want you to respond to what you've heard. But I also think it's worth um, teasing out because we're talking um, 
uh, as though there is a sort of monolithic conservative viewpoint at the court. And we know that Sam Alito is not Clarence Thomas and Clarence Thomas is not John Roberts. So I want you to sort of unpack for us what we're a little bit shorthanding here. And then I also want you to respond to what you're hearing about what the court's going to do next. Well, I I write a lot for the Weekly Standard. Um, I know there's a lot of overlap in the subscription base between (laughs) Weekly Standard and Slate. So I'm sorry to talk about the articles you've already read. Um, But... I've had, hey, I follow you on Twitter. Is that enough? Uh, well, don't, no one should follow me <laughs> on Twitter. Follow no one should follow me on Twitter. Um, but on on the justices, I've I've really enjoyed spending the last ten years trying to unpack where they're coming from and the differences between them. Justice Alito, for example, I wrote a piece years ago, almost a decade ago, about how deeply informed I think his approach is by this 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 long dead Yale law professor named Alex Bickle. I called him the Berkey injustice, and I I picked out cases where he was disagreeing with Scalia on free speech issues and trying to trying to to get the court to stay its hand a bit and allow some space for states to think about how to deal with new issues of video game violence and hate speech and so on. Um, Justice Thomas, his approach is deeply informed by natural law of all things. This came up in his confirmation hearings, but it goes very deep. Um, Gorsuch, I see, is closer to Thomas. If Kavanaugh is confirmed, I see him closer to Scalia or or, um, or Roberts. On Roberts, uh, a few years ago for the 10th anniversary of his time as chief, I, sp- I read everything he's ever written, basically, and listened to about 40 hours of his speeches. I, I have a life, I promise, but not that month. And I tried to unpack how Roberts approaches his job, and I think of it as three nested questions. The first thing he asks in his, his life's work is, what's the federal government's role in our, in our country? The second is, what's the court's role in the federal government? And the third is, what's the chief's role on the court? And he, I won't belabor the point, I belabor it for 10,000 words in the Weekly Standard, but I think he comes to very interesting issues, uh, conclusions on this, and I do think he will be an institutionalist, a conservative institutionalist, of course, but I think he'll be an institutionalist. Just one other thing, um, one other dynamic. Steve's right. The court doesn't create its own cases. It receives them. If this court moves to a more solidly conservative bench, we're going to see ramifications in the way cases are brought. And we're going to see more cases like my, I'm not a Texan. I come from the Texas of the North, Iowa. And we, <laughs> uh, don't laugh, don't laugh. And we, uh, you know, there's a case right now in state court challenging abortion laws. I think you're going to see more of this. I think you're going to see Planned Parenthood or, or any group that brings lawsuits against any of these issues looking first to what they can achieve in the state Supreme Court under the state constitution. And that's going to change the docket of the Supreme Court in important ways. Um, I, I can't help but touch on the, the undue burden um, issue. When the Supreme Court promulgates standards that mushy, right, so detached from the original text of the Constitution, it's hard for me to have much sympathy when subsequent judges treat the undue burden as their own kind of living constitutional standard, right? They're not undue burden originalists. They're not trying to think of what the original court meant. You know, when you frame a legal standard of such consequence in such mushy terms, undue burden, what does that even mean? In the long term, you're going to see things like this. That's why I really wish the court would return more closely to the actual text of the Constitution and not to standards like that. You have to stop for one second because I'm literally trying not to take out my phone and take a photograph of the three faces of the, like, because we've got, like, so so all three of you, I know, have things to say, but Christina, you go first just because you made the best face. And I might, I might also take a picture. <laughs> so... I do want to say one thing that relates to both um, Stephen and Adam's comments about what I think the best hope for the court is. Uh, and that's not that um, the justices will think now we have the clear majority to take these major cases, but instead that they will choose to step out of the fray. And that's that's consistent, I think, with some of what you're suggesting is the proper role of the court. And because I, I believe uh, Roberts is enough of an institutionalist, at least for a little while, I, I hope and I, and I expect there's uh, reason to believe that he will hold back from some of these larger cases. Uh, the reason I think that's important uh, probably diverges from, from your view, um, Adam, and that's because the problem with having a clear conservative majority on the court lurching in a rightward direction is that I don't think the country is lurching in a rightward direction. I think the country is notably moving in a progressive direction. That might be hard to see in Texas. Uh, and maybe it's that I don't spend enough time here that I think that. Uh, but I, I do think there is a 
po the possibility of an extreme disconnect. And I think that uh, Roberts is probably attuned to that. Um, and for that reason, won't want to be like the Supreme Court in the New Deal that was fighting Franklin Roosevelt and then ended up having to uh, shift gears because there was so much public outcry. Um, and then the, the last thing I want to say, and it's in some ways related to this question about the court's relationship to the, the public, is that uh, you know, though I spend a lot of time with my students in constitutional law, uh, scrutinizing the different ways justices come to their conclusions. And you can draw similar um, lines among the so-called liberal justices. Kagan and Breyer have a very different voice from Sotomayor and Ginsburg. But from the public's point of view, I think these are all different paths to the same conclusion for the most part. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's the concern about how people are going to perceive those conclusions uh, that um, makes me worried about the court's future as an institution that's supposed to be uh, somewhat divorced from political decision making, but that I think will weigh on, on Chief Justice Roberts in a way that, that, that could be... Um, our salvation. I, I wanted That's a little bit grandiose for describing Chief Justice Roberts. I mean, no, salvation, no. I mean, something like that. Salvation. <laughs> we're in Texas. Um, <laughs> I, 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 well, I, actually, actually, we're in Austin. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Touche. I want to ask the question that I can tell is on everyone's minds. I want to talk about executive power for the next couple of minutes, and then I want to um, open it up to the audience. But I think... You know the way to my heart. I mean, yeah. <laughs> That's, that's, um, I, uh, I think that, how am I going to condense all this into one question? I guess I could just say executive power, question mark. But uh, I think more pointedly, one of the anxieties that really underlay the, the Kavanaugh hearing before it turned into the thing that it became was, is this just a fifth vote for, you know, absolutely, you know, uncabined executive authority and self-pardons and the end of, you know, uh, life as we know it? Uh, are we just rubber stamping you know, whatever Donald Trump wants, Donald Trump gets. And I, I wonder if, I, let, Steve, you should just go because you think about this so much. I think this had been, to my mind, the principal distinction between Brett Kavanaugh as a nominee of the Supreme Court and any of the other prominent, well-qualified conservative judges on the shortlist. I mean, I, you know, whatever you think of, of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, of Judge Ray Kethledge, of Judge Tom Hardiman, none of them had the track record. Um, the Kavanaugh has when it comes to executive power. Um, and, you know, I think that this was already a court that was moving, not with regard to Trump specifically, but moving toward a, to my mind, more conservative understanding um, of executive power and the separation of powers. That said, I, I don't share, I haven't shared um, the concern that, you know, Brett Kavanaugh is going to be the fifth vote to uphold President Trump's pardon of himself. Um, or to throw out a subpoena from special counsel Mueller for President Trump to testify before a grand jury. Um, not because I have any great faith based on his writings in Judge Kavanaugh, but because it's not going to otherwise be 4-4. Um, right? That, that for everything that I don't necessarily trust about Chief Justice Roberts's conservatism, if ever there's a case where the institutionalism is going to take over, um, it's going to be that one. I mean, if we, the two great executive power conflict cases the Supreme Court has had, um, U.S. versus Nixon, the Watergate tapes case, Clinton versus Jones, the Clinton subpoena case, court was unanimous in both of them. Um, and in Nixon, it was Chief Justice Berger, um, Nixon's handpicked successor to Earl Warren, who wrote the majority opinion. So, you know, I, I think the executive power conversation with a specific eye toward Judge Kavanaugh I actually think it's not about Trump. Um, I think it's about the long-term, and this is where Adam's work comes in, I think it's about the long-term implications that has for the role of the administrative state of the federal government in the abstract, whether the president is Donald Trump or John Kasich or any of the 426 people currently eyeing the Democratic primary in 2020. So, you know, I, I actually think it was, I understand the headline writing attraction. You know, look what, he, he was on the Ken Starr team. He wrote this article in the Georgetown Law Journal. I think the much long, longer lasting implications from Kavanaugh are going to be for the administrative state because it's, I, don't, I don't see a position where he's the fifth vote in a Trump case. Um, I'm going to turn it to, to Christina, but I also just want to point out for the audience that in case you thought this was 
like the nerdiest panel ever, the excited emails that were going back and forth in preparation were all about admin law. So <laughs> let the record reflect. We are that kind of people. Um, but with, the, with teeing that yeah. up, uh, Christina, I know you have thoughts yeah. on this. I'll try to make this as non-geeky as possible. But I think when thinking about presidential power, there are at least three buckets of issues. The first is the set of, can Donald Trump control the law enforcement bureaucracy, pardon himself and his friends, fire the special counsel, um, and will the court overturn f efforts to insulate some institution like that from investigating uh, in order to prevent the president from being investigated? I think the, the second is this question of whether the regulatory state uh, is in danger. Um, and that, to me, is the most consequential um, possibility of a, a Kavanaugh appointment. Uh, and, and I suspect Adam would disagree about that being a danger versus something that would be welcome based on what you said about administrative agencies before. Uh, but I think Kavanaugh and others like him have this interesting combination of belief in the president's power to fully control the bureaucracy, what we call the unitary executive, and to command it all the way down, and this extreme distrust of bureaucrats, such that courts should not defer to what they think about the meaning of congressional statutes. And taken together in the hands of a Republican president, that could mean the decimation of a lot of important social welfare regulation. Uh, so that's a source of concern. The, the last bucket um, is the the extent of presidential power over national security and immigration. And uh, last term, the court decided um, Trump versus Hawaii, essentially upholding President Trump's executive order prohibiting the entry of nationals from five Muslim-majority countries. And if you took that opinion by itself, written by Chief Justice Roberts on its own terms, it would be extremely alarming. Because essentially what the court does is say that in this domain, when the president and his uh, lawyers have a plausible justification for taking a national security and immigration position. Even in the face of evidence that any reasonable person would regard as reflecting an anti-Muslim intent, that the court has to defer to the, the president. I think there are many ways that that opinion can be limited to its facts and that it's not going to lead uh, to a running roughshod over immigrants' rights or um, absolute power over detainees at Guantanamo, that, that sort of thing. Uh, but it it is suggestive of a view of presidential power over national security uh, where the court is taking itself out. And, and Justice Kennedy, in his concurring opinion, did something remarkable there where he said, he suggested that what Donald Trump was doing was actually unconstitutional, that he had uh, suspected he had anti-Muslim animus, but there's nothing the courts can do about it. And uh, the more spaces like that you create, uh, the more uh, I worry, especially in a time when the president is as powerful as he is. It's a, it's a great point. We're going to take some questions, and I'm going to ask folks to line up at this microphone. Hi. Hi. Uh, could you guys talk a little bit about what you think the future of the court is when it comes to the development of substantive due process sort of going all the way back upstream to Griswold v. Connecticut and sort of the downstream progeny cases from there? So, so, so substantive due process um, for the non, you know, con law students in the room. I mean, this is the this is the the short form that may seem make no sense at all. How could process be substantive? Um, that the Supreme Court uses to describe context in which it is recognizing individual rights not expressly enumerated in the Constitution. Um, so Roe is a substantive due process case. Um, Obergefell insofar as you can find a holding in Justice Kennedy's majority opinion is a substantive due process case. Um, I, I think. If it's Judge Kavanaugh, um, I think he's been completely clear that he's a deep and sympathetic supporter of Chief Justice Rehnquist's majority opinion in a case called Washington versus Glucksburg, um, an assisted suicide case, which takes a very dim view um, of the court's um, entitlement to recognize new, hitherto unrecognized, um, implied fundamental rights, unenumerated rights. Um, so I would, I would differentiate rights that have already been recognized where there are going to be other thumbs on the scale against scaling them back from any real interest in recognizing new ones. Um, I think Kavanaugh and probably any of the other folks who would likely be right behind him um, would be a solid fifth vote for being very skeptical and reluctant to do that. Hi, uh, Luis, Austin, UT. Um, Welcome. Uh, for context, next Friday, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court's going to hear Gamble v. U.S. has to do with double jeopardy, dual sovereignty exception, whether or not – I'll let you guys explain it if you want to. But the question is just about the role um, of 
sort of this dual sovereignty process when it comes to the pardon power, uh, double jeopardy, things like that. And the, you know, I'll leave it there, actually. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Gamble, lots yeah. of people I, are asking about it. Do yeah, I, I don't know the ins and outs of that particular case, but the dual sovereignty doctrine essentially allows a state to prosecute someone for essentially the same conduct that the federal government has already prosecuted. Uh, and Notwithstanding the double jeopardy clause. Right, notwithstanding the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution, which says you can't be tried twice for the same offense, uh, on the grounds that uh, states are themselves sovereign and the federal government is itself sovereign, and it's two different governments pursuing uh, the 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 crime. Um, the concern is obviously um, if the court finds that this dual sovereignty doctrine no longer makes any sense, that uh, the states who are ready, the state attorneys general who are ready to prosecute Trump or any of his associates for uh, the, the crimes that he uh, would commit or has have committed um, would not have uh, a leg to stand on if Trump were to pardon uh, the same people uh, for the same conduct at the federal level. So it just eliminates the distinction that is right now for some people a source of comfort uh, that that <laughs> there will be accountability even though the pardon power is itself vast. I, I guess the important footnote is that he only has the power uh, to pardon people for commissions of federal offenses, not for, for state offenses. And, and I'll just say if you want to read an especially hubristic amicus brief, um, read Orrin Hatch's amicus brief in Gamble um, about why we shouldn't let states prosecute things. <laughs> Adam? Well, I, I don't study this case that closely, but it's one of those areas where it's amazing how Trump has totally, has totally, he has this gravitational pull on all of our debates. We're sitting here debating whether it's a good thing. I mean, that's not literally what they're debating, but we're thinking about, you know, should states, you know, have more power to criminalize more things, you know, or to go after criminals who have been pardoned, you know, let's ratchet up criminal law in pursuit of, I mean, a lot of people are saying this is great, we'll be able to get President Trump even if he pardons himself, but this idea of, of pushing in favor of more aggressive law enforcement and against this aspect of civil liberties, because President Trump won't just pardon himself, he'll pardon others, and future presidents will pardon other people too. And who are these future people pardoned by future presidents who are going to be looking down the back of their neck uh, if they are politically unpopular at being prosecuted by state officials? It's, it's cripplingly difficult for all of us, I think, myself included, to think about these things while sort of excluding that particular person from the middle of our mind as we're thinking about the issue. Oh, cut this back. I mean, wait. So, so the separate sovereigns doctrine has been under attack by liberals for quite a while. Um, the justice on the Supreme Court who has been the most vocally against it is Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, right? And so I don't, this was before Donald Trump was anything. Well, not anything, but, you know, <laughs> back when he was just causing trouble in New York. Um, and, and I think the problem is, is that the, the real policy debate here, again, if we can separate the president from the politics of the moment, is not the complicated issues that arise when you have cases where both the state and federal government want to prosecute. It is the preposterous breadth of federal criminal law, um, right? And, and that the way to solve that. And so the, what, what I found hubristic about the hatch brief is not the Trump piece of it. It's a member of the U.S. Senate who has the power to, oh, I don't know, pursue criminal justice reform, um, asking the Supreme Court to do it for him, right? So, so that's, you know, I think, I'm with you. I just think, I think there are ways to sort of not lose sight of the forest for the, the very loud orange tree. Yeah, but he's been thinking about mens rea reform and all this. I mean, Hatch has been pretty good. Right, but so, so let's have some legislation. Yeah. Um, yes. Um, a little warning. It's going to be kind of a little long-winded, worded, and awkward, but whatever. So do you think we are in now or with one of Trump's nominees, we will be going into a modern Lochner era. Can I take that? Yeah, go ahead, Because this gets back to the question about substantive due process. Yeah. I, this gets back to substantive due process, that this is an issue on both the left and the right. I can say, as somebody who spends a lot of time with conservative and libertarian lawyers, all the intellectual energy, really, these days on the right in legal circles is towards libertarianism and towards uh, greater uh, assertion of, of economic liberty in the courts. I mean, the original substantive due process case, or at least one of the originals, was Lochner. And that's why I, I do worry that we're headed in that direction on the right and the left. I think also what the questioner might have had in mind was the uh, apparent trend in the court uh, to use the First Amendment, the free speech clause, to undo 
social and economic regulation. So the knock on the Lochner decision of um, the early 20th century was that it was the court telling the states that they couldn't regulate to set minimum wages, maximum hours, and things of that sort. And that was eventually undone, and it came back again in the form of this uh, protection of liberty and privacy in the cases that we were talking about before. Uh, but there's this increased... Uh, trend towards using the notion that you can't compel people to speak uh, to limit various forms of social and economic regulation. And in her dissent in one of last term's cases uh, that overturned a longstanding precedent in labor law, Justice Kagan warned uh, that the court was weaponizing the First Amendment, um, using a different constitutional provision from the Lochner Court, the Free Speech Clause, uh, to undo the economic regulation that democratic legislatures are um, using to try to protect workers' interests and, and the like. So that is um, the debate uh, that, that's going on right now. Can I just add 20 seconds just on top of that? Um, TikTok, man. And I think, I think the, pro the problem is, is that I think when it, before we got to any of the mess of the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, the thing that bothered me the most was the framing that he's just going to call balls and strikes, right? I'm a, you know, conservative judges, we just, we just apply the law as written. Um, the reality is, right, every judge has constitutional provisions they read differently from their colleagues and that every, you know, side has cases where they're more faithful to prior precedents and less faithful, right? So, you know, there's no such thing as the conservatives follow the law and the liberals don't, um, right? It's just which are the most important principles that are driving your methodology, driving your decision-making, and I think that's where we're going to see the profound shift. Yep. We've got one more question and about three more minutes, so. All right, this is a, a non-technical question because I'm not a lawyer. Uh, I'm an engineer. But um, one thing, and this has already been brought up a little bit by the panel, that, that really struck me was the sort of thundering about, you know, I got into Yale Law School. And, and I think a, like, uh, uh, an effort really on, on the part of all the senators, Democrats and Republicans, to bend over backwards to prop up a power structure that, or really what, what, what strikes me is almost a desperation for a type of aristocracy and a sort of disdain for true democracy or maybe someone who went to UT or something like that could someday possibly get on the Supreme Court. Justice Clark, he did it. Yeah. Well, but the, I, I wonder what you make of of the implication throughout this that it is Brett Kavanaugh's birthright to be on the Supreme Court. Okay. There, there, there's a softball for you. Adam, do you want to respond, or does anyone want to respond? I, I, I don't think... I, listen, I don't think Brett Kavanaugh thinks it's his birthright to be on the Supreme Court. No. Well, okay, wait, 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 wait. We've, we've managed to go so long. I was going to say, we were doing so well. <laughs> you guys were so nice, and then they turned feral in the last 12 seconds. I do think, I mean, listen, I, I do think, again, if we can try to step away from the politics of the moment, I do think there has been a very serious conversation about the lack of diversity on the Supreme yes. Court. Um, and, and I think that's been, but, but just to be clear, and I mean diversity along any number of axes, right? I mean, it's not just that there have only been four women justices in the history of the court. It's not just that there have only been two people of color, um, right? Um, one person, well, two, yeah, two people of color, um, right? It's that, you know, they went to the same two, well, three. Three. Well, if you can. See, <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, if we want to talk about Justice Cardozo, this could get awkward. Um, <laughs> the, um, they, they all went to two law schools. Right, um, they're all members of two minority religious groups um, in this country. Well, we've got now one, right? It, uh, we've got one non-Catholic, but uh, we functionally have a lot of Catholics and a lot of Jews. Until Gorsuch, yep. right? It was all Catholics yep. and Jews. Yep. Um, which you know, as the Jew, I say, hey, you know, more <laughs> Jews. Um, so, so, and and geographically, I mean, just you know, little-known fact at the for a lot for much of the of the Supreme Court's history in the 19th century, the way the court was distributed was geographically. Um, where the reason why we went from six seats in 1790 to nine seats in 1837, I think, right, somewhere down there, um, is because each time they added a circuit, there was a justice. There's a new justice for each circuit so that every part of the country had one justice, um, right? Now we have, you know, a Northeast Corridor court and Justice Gorsuch, um, right? And so I, I think the, the separate from what you feel personally about Brett Kavanaugh, I think there, you know, the we ought to take more seriously the idea that the Supreme Court should look like us. And I say this as a white male Jewish graduate of Yale Law School. Okay. <laughs> Christina, then Adam. So I endorse everything that, just about everything that Steve just said. <laughs> but 
my own personal reaction to, to Kavanaugh's statement was that there was a strong undercurrent of entitlement in it. And that was what the, the, the yearbook reflected to me um, and what his invocation of Yale and the rallying of people from the Washington establishment to his side. And I think that connects to what we started the conversation with, uh, which was uh, why this is a hearing that's roiling uh, the country. Because you know it's a combination of elite, white, male entitlement that's under attack in the Me Too movement, but I think it's also leading to Lindsey Graham's kinds of right. outbursts. And, and I think that this is a really... Uh, potentially explosive moment in, in our history, and it's sad that the court is in the middle of it, but the court is is just part of a much larger reckoning that um, hopefully won't tear us apart, but that will make us a better country. Adam? Well, just to end my own comments on a positive note, I mean, I agree with Steve that the, the lack of diversity of background among the justices is a real problem, um, speaking especially as a, as a Midwesterner. Um, but I will say that, you know, the next nominee... Uh, the next nominee might be a woman from a non-elite law school called Notre Dame named Amy Coney Barrett, and I would love to talk to you about her. <laughs> I, I love so, when, when people are correcting their own spontaneous outbursts. Like, wait, wait, wait. I want to edit that. Reverse, I, reverse, reverse. I feel I, like you got to own that or not. I mean, come on. I really, I really kind of trapped him on that yeah, one. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Angela, do you have a, a parting thought on sort of these 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 questions about sort of you know, I, I, I hate the word identity politics, but let's say you know sort of these ideas of of in, entitled white men and and who who don't listen to women. I mean that seems to be the through line here, and I think it's at least a legitimate question. Do you have a? No, I think I, I definitely agree with everything that Adam and uh, Christina said. Uh, I definitely have that that. The same, you know, he certainly came across as, uh, sounding very entitled. I would say, I'll say one nice thing really about Kavanaugh, that, and I think it's that diversity on the other end of, of the, the clerks oh, of yeah, the court. Yeah, and he, sure. um, he uh, had done a wonderful job of having a very diverse group of clerks, um, both racially and gender-wise. And so that was something I thought might be interesting to see how that might have shifted some of his views depending on his interactions with his quirks and what he may have learned from them. But uh, we won't know. We may not know. Let me, let me just say this, because I've been thinking about it a lot. You know, I, I think that there's a reason that the court holds up in this marble palace, right? Like, they don't want to have people, like, pop out of elevators and scream at them. I mean, they don't, you know... Uh, I they, think they don't let cameras in the court. No, they don't let cameras in. They don't, you know, Justice O'Connor was very anxious about protesters out on the, the plaza because they really feel, and I think it goes back to the very first thing that I said, which is they feel that that's not their job to either look like America or represent America. They want to believe that what they're doing is this kind of magical intellectual exercise and, and all of these sort of personal issues that inflect on, including where you go to school and including your religion and including your race, really does corrode their ideas about, you know, sort of pure legal analysis. And I think that there's something very profound if you stop and think about people in bars on Thursday, you know, people walking down the street watching these hearings on their phones, people like ducking into the bathroom to listen, that this is an amazing moment to sort of bridge the gap between this idea, we have this aspirational idea of this temple of justice that is totally disaggregated from the lives that we lead to like now like, wow, wow, we are in this fight now. And I don't know if it's good or bad for the court, but I do think it, at least in this generation, I've never seen people so invested in the idea that you don't get to just behave like that in a hearing and then say, I'm good, dismount, balls and strikes. You know, I think it's well, a really... We'll, we'll, we'll find out in a week. Yeah. No, it's a really... I mean, I think what what is different about this is that it turns out justices are people too. And <laughs> yikes. Um, so that is going to do it for this. is going to do it for this special live edition of Amicus, recorded on stage at Slate Day in Austin, Texas. If you want to get in touch with us, our email is amicus at slate.com. You can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. I want to thank Angela Onwachi Willie, Christina Rodriguez, Steve Laddick, and Adam White for sitting here and being oh so dorky. Thank you. <laughs>
Today's show was produced by Sarah Birmingham with special thanks to Pierre Bianame and Benjamin Frisch. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer. June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Let's see what happens next. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.